0: Amen. You go ahead and be seated. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, this morning. As we continue our verse by verse study through the book of Philippians, we pick things up this morning in chapter 2, verse 12. Just a little bit of background if you weren't with us, Paul is currently imprisoned in Rome, and he is writing a letter to the church at Philippi. The church which we read about in the book of Acts prior to starting Philippians. We saw, you know, I think it was Acts chapter 16, if my memory serves me right. You know, you can read that about him going to the city of Philippi and planting that church. You know, the the events that occur as the church of Philippi is born. He's currently been in prison in Rome for about two years. And he's writing to them for a few different reasons. One, to thank them for the gift that they sent him. You know, they've taken an offering, they're sending it to him. They're sending him a person to help him, and he's also riding them to address some division that is brewing at the church of Philippi. There are two prominent ladies in the church that um, are not getting along, not getting along. That will happen, you know, and and Paul is riding them to encourage unity in the body of Christ, and we saw unity two weeks ago. We saw him you know, emphasizing unity last week, we see some key characteristics he calls out at the beginning of chapter 2. He talks about, you know, the church needs to be under the encouragement of Christ, in the comfort of love, in the participation of the Spirit, to have affection for one another, to have sympathy for one another, to be humble, to not pursue selfish, selfish ambition or conceit. And he's saying these things result, if you're practicing these things, they result in a unified church, he talks about putting the needs of others before your own, and then where we left off is he goes on there about, you know, about halfway through chapter two, and he gives the ultimate example, which is Christ. In other words, he's saying, I didn't, I'm not asking you to do something that the example hasn't already been set for you in Jesus, you know, when you look at his life, and if you're called to be his disciple, you need, we need to see these things in your life. And then right after that, he gives us this section of Scripture, you know, listing the example of Christ, and we start in verse 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, speaking of when he was in Philippi, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he says to work Work out your salvation. He doesn't say to work for your salvation. Those are two very different things. Working out your salvation is different than working for your salvation. You can't earn your salvation, right? We know this. At least we should know this by now if you've been here for some time. And if you haven't, then I've gotten good news for you, right? Is <laughs> you can't earn your salvation. That's a good thing. Because if I could earn my salvation, I would be worried about it every day. Because I don't do a good job sometimes. But the fact that it's a free gift provided by God's grace should give us peace and comfort in that. But he says, work it out. You know, in other words, don't let it, don't let it just be a thought. You know, keep it active in your life. What is it? What does it produce in your life? How does it work out in your life? And he says, with fear and trembling. When he says with fear and trembling, I think it's important to understand. Um, I don't view that as him saying. You need to be, you know, every day you wake up, you just need to be on edge, you know, about your salvation with fear and trembling in the sense that maybe we interpret that in English. She actually uses this exact same phrase in 2 Corinthians twice, referring to Titus in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Referring to Titus, You he says, you received him with fear and trembling. And then he also refers to himself, saying you received me with fear and trembling. And the reason he uses this in 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 my opinion, is because the terms for fear and trembling can just as easily be interpreted as a reverence. And it is interpreted, literally is interpreted, that word in the Greek for fear as reverence other places in the New Testament. So I, I, I would strongly believe that what he's saying here is not, you know, walk every day in just fear and trembling, but walk every day having a reverence and a respect for God. Right, and what he has given you, in his power, in his office, just like when he uses it in those other contexts about the office of the apostle or those he sends, like respect their position, have a, have a reverence for it. Not much unlike our own relationship with our father, right? There should be a, there should be a reverence for your father and your mother. I have more sometimes. My mother was much scarier than my father, so. <laughs> But I'm not talking about scary, so I kind of contradicted myself there. Sorry. <laughs> and then in, in verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I, and I love the follow-up there. He says, listen, it's God working into you. And if, if you will allow him, he will, he will provide the will and the work for his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling, or disputing. It's funny because oftentimes people turn to the Book of Philippians for some of the most encouraging verses, right? Like Philippians is full of encouraging verses. Athletes write the verses on their face, right? Philippians, you know, um, four thirteen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? We kind of gloss over these harder verses. <laughs> can you imagine if somebody wrote on their face, "Do all things without grumbling or disputing"? I'm just, I don't know, I don't know anybody. I certainly can't read that without some degree of conviction, right? Because the reality is, is all things are all things. If all things are all things, I'm convicted there because I don't do all things without grumbling or complaining. Can you remember a passage in the Bible where Jesus was just complaining? It's not there, is it? You know, where he's like, oh, I'm stuck with this food or... This is my living arrangement, or I'm called to fast for 40 days, you know, like complaining and grumbling. I, you can't recall it, and it really speaks to an attitude that as his disciples, we should carry about us, right? An attitude that we should carry about us. Have you ever been around somebody, and I don't think anybody's perfect in this, but have you ever been around somebody to a large degree? They don't frequently complain or grumble, and it's, it's rather refreshing. I don't know if you ever experienced that, but it's rather refreshing to be around them. And I mean, that's the attitude we should all have, especially to this world, right? Um, it's, it's much easier said than done, and, the, and I can tell you the only way I can accomplish it is by relying on His Spirit to rule my life because I cannot do that on my own. If, it's, if I'm on my own, I am grumbling and complaining all the time right? That's, that's what the flesh does, grumbles and complains. And it says that you should be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Can you relate to that generation? I would say what, what generation has ever existed that could not relate to that? We're not unique in that. I feel like every generation that's ever existed can probably relate to the, to the description of a crooked and twisted generation because the human heart hasn't changed much. That's why. The human heart hasn't changed much. Now, it's interesting because even though the, you know, it, it, it seems to me in some areas we're getting darker and more twisted and more crooked, not because the human heart has changed, but probably because, oh, especially over the last 100 years, technology and other things have developed to, to exacerbate the evilness, right? To, to, I mean, when you think about, you know, in the last century, in the last century, there's been 123 million people killed in war. Killed in war. That is, if you look at every other century before that, it, I mean, it's not even close. It's by far. Far the last hundred years, more people have died in more than any other century, and it's not even close. Why? Because technology, right? Technology, population growth—you have so much, you know, evil even at the tip of your your hands, right? You can go to your phone, you can engage in all kinds of stuff. The human heart hasn't changed, but access and and all kinds of other things have, haven't they? And so, to a certain degree, in the world does seem somewhat somewhat darker, right? And I think, I think it's important to view the world plainly for what it is. I think it's important to view the world plainly for what it is. And that is, the world is, is a dark place. It is. A, it's a very dark place. I think it's also important to view the world how Jesus viewed the world, right? And, 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 and he, there are scriptures that clearly says the world is dark, but he also, we also have Matthew nine thirty six where he says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Right. So balance those. Right. So we, we know the world's dark, it has been, through, ever since the fall of mankind. But also, do we have compassion like Jesus says? Do we view them as sheep without a shepherd? Are we willing to you know, empathize with them? Um, what are we to do about it? Well, he gives that in the very next line, right? He says, we're in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. He said, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That should be our response. Our response should not be to just check the news every day, get depressed, and then just stay in our house and do nothing. Just live a depressed life in our little bubble, Right? It says he, he commands us to do something here. He says, whom you shine as lights to them, to the world, in the darkness. We're told multiple times, multiple times throughout scripture. This is not even close to being the only time. Two things. Number one, that Jesus is the light of the world. And number two, that as disciples, as Jesus, we are called to be the light. And since we're frequently commanded that, I'm going to spend just a little bit of time talking about what it means to be the light of the world, as his disciples, to reflect his light. The first thing that always strikes me about this analogy, and, and I love it because it's such a rich analogy, is simply what is, what is light and what is darkness? One thing I love about him calling us the light of the world is that light can't be overcome by darkness. It's just a fact, Right? Because what is darkness by nature? It's just the absence of light, right? I can't grab something and put dark on you, right? I'm, right? But I can put light on you because light always will populate, right? It's something you can, you can fill a room with. Because darkness is simply the absence of light. I always love the analogy I've heard from time to time about the sun, S-U-N, sun who represents the sun, S-O-N, and the moon. And I like that analogy for a few reasons. Number one, you know, if you look at this analogy that, that Jesus is the sun, S-U-N, and, and we're, we're the moon, I think, I think it fits. The first reason I think it fits is because apart from the sun, does the moon have any light in and of itself? No. What are we? Just a rock, right? Just a rock, man. I love that because that's what I am apart from Christ. I mean, not only does it not only have any light, but at times it can even interfere with other light, right? It can eclipse it. However, the moon, the moon is beautiful because in the midst of darkness, it reflects light. And that's exactly what we're called to do as disciples of Christ. We are called to reflect His light to this worlds. The other neat part about it is the amount of light that is reflected is dependent on the exposure to the sun, right? The exposure to the sun, and the same, same, same thing is true for us. The more we expose ourselves to Christ, the more we're participating with the Spirit, the brighter light we have to shine on this earth, right? We should all be full moons to other people. Not moon other people, but full moons <laughs> to other people. Don't want you to take me wrong, Isaac. No. Light, light is essential to to life, and it directly impacts us. Right, light. Light is essential to our existence on Earth. Without light, there is no existence. It's essential to photosynthesis. We need it to navigate this world. It also impacts our emotional well-being, doesn't it? I mean, it's well documented when we lack light from the sun. We have all kinds of disorders now and all kinds of things that are directly caused from that. It affects our vitamin levels. It affects our mood. I can tell a difference even on Sunday morning, right? You know, when it's a bright, sunny day, especially during this time of year for the first time, everybody's coming in smiling, right? And And then other times it's cloudy and you just, you're here for a reason, right? Because you need to be lifted up. You need, you need Jesus. For most of human history, when the sun went down, the world shut down, right? It was, it was a necessary component. Army stopped marching. Ships couldn't dock. Um, nowadays, of course, we can, we can light up a whole stadium. Lighting, lighting a building or an environment can impact the way that we use the space. It can impact the way we enjoy the space. And it can impact the mood of the space, right? And I would submit to you, as if we're called to be the light of the world, we probably have the ability to do all of those things. Some of the best light that we enjoy, again, I can't emphasize this enough, is because it is what? In the midst of darkness, right? Some of the most enjoyable light is in the midst of darkness. When a room is really well lit, you know, you don't really pay attention to much, much of the light, right? Um, during Christmas time, when you decorate a tree, you can walk into maybe a mall and there's a tree that's lit there and you don't give it much attention, but some of the best light is when you decorate a tree at home and you turn off the lights, right? And then there's just that, that glow in the midst of darkness and it's rather magical, I think. Maybe I'm just sappy, I don't know, but I love it, right? The most wonderful time of the year. One of my, another another favorite is what? During we have 4th of July coming up. Can't come fast enough for me, right? And it's dark, right? You wait till dark. You don't light, you know, fireworks are great during the day, whatever. They're cool. You can look at them, but how much better are they when they're in the midst of darkness? So much better, right? That's why we stay up late. You can look at the stars. Another example what, when you, at night, when you look at the sky, it is mostly darkness. I mean that's what it's mostly dark, but what does our focus automatically go to? the light, right? It goes to the stars. and we are all called, all of us. If we're going to be a disciple of Christ. We're called to be stars, not movie stars, <laughs> but stars. like quite literally, Daniel chapter 12 says. Those who are wise will shine like the brightest of the heavens, and those who lead men to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There are, different, there are different ways we use light and shine light, isn't there? Different functions. Sometimes you use a light and it's just a soft glow. Sometimes you use lights that light a pathway for you to follow. When you light a room... Um, Again, sometimes it's soft. Sometimes someone puts a light in your face, right? And how the, the appropriate use for those different things are determined by the context, right? Context determines how we use light. Sometimes we want a soft glow. Sometimes we need a path lit for us. Sometimes we need a light in our face, right? The context depends. And I would, I would also say that how we choose to shine the light of Jesus is also dependent on context. I think it's a very important thing. You know, what situation, what environment are you in? How should you shine the light of Christ in that environment? No matter how the context is, there are a couple key elements that are a must, right? And I think these are important to mention. Number one is that light has to be seen, has to be seen. Notice it says that, you know, be a light among a twisted and crooked generation. In other words, he's, he's not saying to go out, start your own compound, okay, and make it self-sufficient, and, and that way you don't have to engage in this world. That's not, that's not what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to be a light in the midst of darkness, and in order to do that, you have to engage to some degree with darkness, Right? If, you, if the only time you're a light is here on Sunday morning, I mean, I'm just not sure the effectiveness of that, right? Be a light in the midst of darkness. Um, we have to be willing to engage with this world. Now, I think, you know, if you look at the opposite side of that, which is probably worthy of mentioning, when we say be a light in the midst of darkness, you have to also be a little bit cautious to some degree, We shouldn't be, we need to put ourselves in situations in the midst of darkness where we have the ability to shine and thrive, right? Not put ourselves and isolate ourselves in the midst of darkness where we believe the end result is going to be our light dimmy. right? That's not good. That's not healthy. And so there, but at the same time, don't, don't seclude yourself to have no effect. The last thing I'll mention is that light reveals what darkness hides, right? No matter what no, no matter what, there's a, there's a revealing that light brings about, even different types of light. Have you ever been under a black light? You're like, man, my dandruff is out of control, right? It's the worst. <laughs> I remember my, I, I, it mortified me. I remember my first time I ever went to a black light party as like a school dance, right? I mean, I, I'd never even been around a black light. And I remember walking in, and like there these white specks all over me, I was like, oh, no, this is horrible, right? I was mortified. I will never forget that. Like, I didn't even know what was coming from my head. And it was a, the worst experience of my life because it revealed something to me, right? And it was horrible. And, and sometimes the, what the Word tells us is that the light can be offensive. In other words, the light of the gospel can be offensive because there is a revealing element to it. In John chapter 3, verse 19 through 20, it says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And that's important to keep in mind, that when we share the gospel, not everybody will like us. To some people, it will be very offensive because an element of the gospel is What? We're all sinners, right? An element of the gospel says we are all sinners, that none of us are worthy, and there's an exposing element to that that can have some people quite upset when you say that. And there's generally either a receptive response of, yeah, you know what, you're right, I I understand that, or get away from me because I do not like what you're telling me and the exposure that you're trying to bring about my life. I like my darkness, and I'm going to stay there. So we're called to be light. Um, Verse 16, moving on. It says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So hold fast to the word of life so that that day we cross the finish line, you know, he's saying, I can be proud that I did not labor in vain. You know, running, running this race that we call life can be rather hard, can't it? can be rather difficult. Life is hard. That's just the truth. Life is hard. It is for me, at least. If life is going to be hard, I'd rather it not be in labor or in vain. (laughs) I'd rather it means, if life's going to be hard, I'd rather it mean something. And that's one thing I wanted to mention. The other thing is, when you look at the context of this and what he's saying, it kind kind of brought a different meaning to me. So, you know, when Paul writes this again, he's writing to the church at Philippi that he went there, And the Holy Spirit used him to plant that church. And he says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He's speaking personally about himself. and And he's saying, listen, do these things. So, you know, be a unified church so that when the day comes, this church at Philippi is not destroyed and my labor that I did there is not in vain. And the reason I think that kind of changes it a little bit is because he understands the seriousness of division in the church. He under, he, to him, you know, this dispute between these two prominent ladies, this dispute between these two prominent ladies, he is not taking that lightly. That's what that tells me. He is literally encouraging them and saying, you know, hold fast to the word of life. This is a serious thing. So that it does not destroy the work that was done there. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by good, by news of you. So he's saying, listen, my plan at some point is to send Timothy to you, and I hope that I get a report back that you have solved these problems in the church that you're not going to divide, that your church is not crumbling, that you take the advice that I'm giving you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That, is, that really impacts me when he says this. Because, I mean, Paul looks at the heart of Timothy, and he believes wholeheartedly that Timothy is genuinely concerned. About the welfare of that church. And Timothy was with him in Philippi, by the way. But he says, I have no one like him who is genuinely concerned for your welfare, the scarce the scarcity, right, of, of that person. It's not high it's not a, a thing that you commonly see, apparently. He says, For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. And that is such a big problem in the church. And especially, you know. I I believe it's a huge problem in the uh, American church. I think that it's a big problem in American Christianity. And and it's probably just because that's what I know. It's probably like that other places, I'm sure. But the number of people who are in ministry or are at a church for selfish ambition and are looking out for their own interest instead of genuinely caring about people in the body of Christ, I think it's going to be a rather high number that that applies to but you know timothy's proven worth verse 22 how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel and so how do they know timothy's proven worth again timothy was there with him in philippi when they planted that church paul and timothy have this spiritual father and spiritual son relationship one thing i think that's really cool about that is you you get a you get a sense of how much Paul trusts Timothy, right? How much, how genuine he thinks he is, how close they are. And yet when you read through scripture, you, 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 you get the sense that they're two entirely different types of people. Paul and Timothy were, they just had different personalities. And what I love about that is it doesn't matter what your personality is, right? Christ can use you. If you have the same heart for Christ, if you have the same genuine care for the people, you can have a bond that is incredibly strong. You know how different this church is from each other? Oh my goodness, right? Gives me the biggest headache sometimes. (laughs) Biggest headache sometimes. So different from each other. I mean, even all across the spectrum. And I can look across this room and see people whose interests are just polar opposite. And yet, there's this bond that can be created in Christ that is just incredibly awesome. I look across this church in terms of, you know, even when we play music on Sunday morning, and there's a diversity in that. How 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 different people worship, but you know, it's about your heart, and how how what, what is, how how is your heart, right? We're just different from each other, but there's a unity that can take place in Christ that Paul and Timothy had, even though their personalities were different. He said, "I hope, therefore, to send him, just as soon as I as." Just as soon as I see how it will go with me here. So he's not sending Timothy yet. He's waiting to see how his imprisonment will go. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it was necessary to send you. You know, I struggle. What's that? Uh, A that's it. Thanks, Grace. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier... And your messenger and minister to my needs. So Epaphroditus was sent to Paul for two reasons. Number one, he was delivering an offering that was taken for Paul, so material goods. But he was also sent to him to kind of stay with Paul and to minister to him directly, right? Paul needed people while he was in prison. So that was their intent as well. And he says, For he has been longing for all of you since he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death because he was outside of God's calling, because he didn't have enough faith, because he didn't name it and proclaim it enough, right? Is that what it says? No. Have you ever heard that taught? It's absolutely bankrupt. I hope you know that. To teach that if somebody is sick, it must be because of some type of sin in their life or some type of they're outside of God's calling or if they if they just had more faith then they'd be healed it's just not an accurate teaching in scripture and it's really it's sad to me because that is it's a more popular teaching than you think and it's used to control people it's used to have power over people right somebody bring me that offering plate send it around again right not enough faith in this church. Where's your faith? <coughs> Isaac, <think> God. <laughs> I, think... I love you, man. Isaac, i think have to bring me the offering plate. Sorry, Isaac. I love you, man. Hey, at least I know that you got my back. I appreciate that. But right, like, you see that, and it's incredibly, oh, you guys don't have enough faith for this. You know, we're, like, it's it's a tactic that's used to control people, and and it's not okay. And I, I hate, when I see it abused, I get incredibly frustrated. You know, here, he's sick. Not be, you know, he's sick. Yeah, he's sick because of sin, right? But the sin of the fall of mankind, the sin of the fall of mankind caused corruption to come into the world. That's just the way that goes. It brought death into the world. We were not even you know, designed to die originally, right, until sin corrupted mankind. That's how death came in this world, and with it, it brought sickness and disease and all of that. But here you have the servant of God serving Paul faithfully, and he was ill near to death. Sorry, I'm still trying to get that out of my mind. (laughs) I know. If you know me and Isaac, we laugh about quite a bit. And we have frequently have inside jokes. So it's really hard to, to hold it together up here. But, <laughs> but it says, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So, so I think this also goes to the fact that why was he healed? It wasn't, he, he was not healed because, of, because he had more faith. He was not healed because he dealt with some sin in his life. God's mercy is not dependent on us, right? He was healed because God had mercy on him. That's why he was healed. God had mercy and grace on me just to forgive me and give me eternal life. That's offered to all of us. And when we have the perspective that we have eternal life and that this life is temporary, it changes everything when you can really gain that perspective. And then he says, lest I shall have sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, be in sorrow because I'm imprisoned and then bring about his death, which would bring me sorrow. And what's important to note there, in my mind, is that last week, what did we talk about? We talked about how comfortable the apostle Paul was with the concept of death. Remember? Remember Paul's talking about death at the beginning of chapter 2. You can go read about it, and and he's saying, listen, I'm torn whether I want to stay here on this earth or whether I want to leave. My desire is to leave. My desire is to be with Christ. And yet, even though he's very comfortable with death, even though he had an experience with heaven we, ne- we haven't had, he's still death still brings him sorrow, and that's okay. It still brings him sorrow. It says in verse 28, I am the more eager to send him, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at see- seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And so he, he, he kind of concludes chapter two there, saying receive him. He's been a great servant. He almost died for Christ. I just want to conclude. Well, we'll end here. If you didn't notice, to me, the primary message was to be the light. I think it's so important to be the light in the midst of darkness. What are some of the things that he's talked about in chapter two, specifically, that he's called us to do to be the light. Well, he's told us to hold fast to the word of life, hold fast to Scripture. What well, that's the word of life. He's called us to have affection, to have humility, to have compassion, to not complain or grumble, to participate in the Spirit, to give comfort and love, to have comfort in Christ, and not to have selfish ambition or see. That's just chapter two, but those are just some of the things that we can do to be a light in the midst of darkness, and I would really, really encourage you this week. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I know it's a dark world out there, and I get upset. I'm going to Corland today. I'll probably be upset before my first stoplight, right? <laughs> it's hard, and that's such, so, so stupid to say, but it's somewhat true, right? How frustrated do we get about the little things? And yet, my goal this week, and and I just really want to encourage you to try to focus on being the light this week. Like purposefully. Wake up every day. Hey, I'm gonna remember what we taught, what we what we read on Sunday, not complain, not grumble. Focus on putting others before myself, focus on participating in the spirit, focus on being affectionate and compassionate. For those people, instead of reading through a news article and just thinking how much I hate the left or the right, I'm going to view people as Jesus viewed them. And that is sheep without a shepherd who are led to the slaughter. And I'm going to be fulfill my duty as a disciple of him to love them the best I can, to give them the best chance at grace like I have. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this this time that we have together, Lord, and just ask that you, as we go throughout our week, Lord, may your spirit abide in us. May we not just depend on ourselves for this, Lord, but may we depend on you, Lord. May you give us eyes to see. May you give us ears to hear the things that you see, the things that you hear, Father, to view the world the way you view it, Lord. And then just let us know whatever our purpose, our role is, to fulfill that calling that you have told us time and time again throughout your scriptures, all throughout your words, Old Testament, New Testament, to be a light to this world. We love you and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.